moving your career further faster. That's the mission behind Cascading Leadership. Each week, we're bringing you stories of women, immigrants, members of the global majority who have risen to the ranks of senior leadership in the world of business. Get ready to gather the insights of some of the world's best business leaders and apply those to your career. If you're interested in sales and marketing effectiveness, organizational effectiveness, talent strategy, DEI, or HR tech, tune in. We're going to share with you what they don't teach you in business school. Welcome to the show. Welcome to another episode of Cascading Leadership. I am your host, Jim. And I am Lawrence Brown. Hello, Lawrence Brown. How are you? Outstanding. Oh, he's using, he's dropping the big voice on us, even bigger voice than normal. We are super excited to showcase another episode. We have Sarah, who is back for the second half of her story. So hi, Sarah. Hello. Thanks for having me back. For those of you who have been following us, thank you for the support. We are getting some pretty significant downloads and listenership. So that is awesome. We'll have new episodes rolling out every Thursday or Friday with some special features as well. For those of you who listened in to the first part of Sarah's story, we learned about the formative experiences that Sarah had, what life was like growing up in a small town, and the impact that her parents, and specifically her mom, had on shaping her view for the future and and career trajectory. And what was most interesting about some of that conversation is that there's a pretty strong vein of bucking the trend or bucking expectations that came out in Sarah's conversation. Obviously, in in the town that uh, she grew up in, the expectation was, to some degree, you either work in the factory or you become a teacher or some variation of those two paths. And Sarah wasn't down for that. So that was a a really great part of the story. And what we want to do in this episode is transition from her journey through college and grad school and how that informed her early career path. So again, super excited to have you back, Sarah. Let's pick it up from, from grad school, what that experience was like at a high level, and then how that informed of the path that you took into the world of work. Grad school, man. I have to, might have a little bit of PTSD coming out of that experience, but it was, it, grad school, I think for a lot of people, is the best of times and the worst of times. It's so hard to stay motivated and focused. I loved each semester when I was assigned to a teaching assistantship as my way to earn a stipend. That was honestly my favorite part of grad school to a large degree. I did enjoy my research. I had a lot of passion for employee selection. I did my thesis on that topic with a little bit of a connection to judgment and decision making. I was lucky enough to work with an advisor who had a sub line within IO psychology that tied to subject the subject of decision making. A lot of like Kahneman and Traversky readings and that stuff was super intriguing to me. How people make decisions and and what motivates them to go down one path or the next. So I did a thesis at combining employee selection and and judgment decision-making. I think ultimately that work that I did in grad school got me the internship at the right time in the right place at Kellogg. Um, After I had done my qualifying exam, my my comps, and I I had done that oral defense, and it was the typical time in grad school where somebody goes out and seeks out an intern. Of my cohort, I was the only one applied to Kellogg and somehow I landed it. And it was just, I would say the 
one of the proudest moments I've had in getting selected for that Kellogg internship. It's got huge brand recognition. My family was just over the moon. Sarah's working for Tony the Tiger, for goodness sake. <laughs> that never gets old. I will, I actually, as part of my internship, raised my hand one day when they needed a last minute fill-in for somebody to wear the Tony suit and stand in the backdrop where every new employee that day gets to come and take their picture next to Tony. They had somebody like, I don't know, sick or whatever. And so I was like, I'll do it. Sure. And so then I kind of became a regular and I just love bragging about my time at Kellogg. I think it's really, it's really the place where I got to, again, like I've done in the past, try on different sets within my career and see what I like, what I don't like. And it's where I would say I got some of the best career advice from women leaders that I worked for throughout the different centers of excellence of talent management, organizational development, and leadership development. I was somebody who just always said, yeah, and if there was a project and they needed an extra set of hands, it didn't bother me to shift priorities and go to a new team and say, okay, how can I help? I don't know much, but I will absorb and I will grind however you need me to, to make this successful. And I think that was something that really served me well. So much so that when the summer was winding down and it was time to go back to Bowling Green in grad school, I had a bit of a fork in the road moment. It was, you could either stay at Kellogg, the full-time offer is has been extended to join the team on a permanent basis with benefits and all sorts of health insurance perks that were pretty enticing at that moment in my life or go back to grad school, grind out a dissertation and get that PhD as the course was described. And I had a lot of, I would say, reflective time, conversations with friends and family. Again, I relied on my community as I was making that big choice. Just prior to you know, that summer winding down and making that kind of decision, my dad had actually passed away earlier that year. And he was the one who like just gushed about Sarah getting this job. She's working on this project where she's creating an interview guide that will be used for every single person who's hired at Kellogg, whether it be somebody who's operating a line making Pop-Tarts or a senior executive in Australia. Sarah's creating these questions and this rubric for selection. She's training managers on how to use it. And it's all part of like her area of expertise. And when my dad could team and articulate what I was doing and why it was exciting, I just I had such a connection to that work even deeper I think that I even realized. And so when I had the decision to either take a full-time job or go back to grad school and finish my dissertation, I, again, went against the grain and decided to say no to that PhD, which I think there's a lot of people who don't understand that, right? Like you had the opportunity to have a PhD in your signature title and you walked away from it or especially at Bowling Green, you don't walk away from a BGSU industrial organizational psychology PhD. You just don't. There's people who can't cut it. And maybe I would have landed in that bucket if I would have tried and gone back and done it. But for me, I knew that the door that I was closing, although it was still hard to close, the door that I was closing for my career was any academic route. I wasn't going to be a tenure track searcher at a um, prestigious IO school. And I was okay with that. I was. So I took the full-time offer at Kellogg and I just put my nose down and I, again, continued to say yes to different projects. And I just treated my time there as a sponge. 
market. Like I just wanted to learn and experience and see what work looked like in all sorts of different areas. I volunteered for little things that would interact with or cross over into recruiting or what have you. And again, I think I realized that recruiting probably wasn't something that I loved. I wasn't going to be in a talent acquisition COE. Now, never say never, but I haven't done it yet. And it really did, I think, create that passion for me in that employee engagement org design space and how a company succeeds through people. That is a lot of table setting. <laughs> when you were going through grad school, you mentioned that one of the tracks that really stood out to you was the judgment and decision-making track that you took on. And that's some great foreshadowing because you and I have talked about your, your journey. So that's going to come back into play a little mm. bit later on. So I want to put a pin in that. But as you were talking through that entire grad school journey and the PhD track, what immediately stood out was the part where you're talking about your dad explaining what you did and beaming about that. That's the second time your dad came out hard on a path in the last episode uh, when we were talking about you graduating high school. Your dad came up and said, no, she's undecided. She's not going to go into teaching or whatever the major was. She's undecided on the major. And you get this internship at Kellogg. You're doing all of this great work. And side note, I could totally get into full out nerd conversation on the talent side because that's my wheelhouse too. But then the impact of your dad talking about your work and the influence there, that's another big instance of him showing up and kind of guiding you a particular direction. How much weight did your dad going that hard or having that sort of impact about the work that you did? How much did that have on your decision to buck the trend and not go the PhD route? I'm sure it had a pretty heavy weight, even if it, even if I wasn't doing a, a weighted pros and cons list at the time. The fact that, granted, if I had gone the PhD route and became a doctorate, my dad would have been over the moon to brag about the fact that I had a PhD. There were many of my peers growing up that never even considered going to college. And then here I could be a standout success story for him to brag about. And every kid seeks that kind of um, acknowledgement and wanting to make their parents proud. But then I, I had to wait and he wasn't there, right? Like to help me in that moment, make the decision. But I just remember when I would come home on a weekend after a week of work at Kellogg and he would legitimately want to know what I was working on and be very interested. And he just loved to tell friends and family about my work and where I was. And it weighed immensely on my decision. And it also, I think, the fact that I was going through such a loss at that time in my life also wanted to make a decision that was going to make me happy and not put more stress or emotional strain on me. And like I said at the very beginning, when you mentioned grad school, right? It's hard. <laughs> and that last PhD stretch is, I could see it. I could see how hard it was going to be. I even tossed out some proposed dissertation topics and to get that kind of that's not going to work because, or no, we can't go that path. No, it, it's not going to be a dissertation worthy topic and that type of rejection, which is the process. It, there, it wasn't being personal. It was how dissertations go. I think it was the also one of the first times I made a decision that was focused on my own emotional and psychological well-being. I just didn't have the capacity to go back through and put myself through that at that time. And I kept getting positive reinforcement at work. I was doing a great job. People wanted me on their team. I was getting accolades and appreciation where grad school is nothing but revise and resubmit over and over. 
and I really do. I think it was a combination of, I love telling people where I work, what I do. I know my parents are and would have been proud of either decision I would have made. But I think if I really think about why I made that decision, it was for my own well-being at that moment in time. And I was, again, I also knew what I was closing the door to. I knew what option I was eliminating from my future career potentials. And I, I was okay with that. I was more than okay with that. I knew I wanted to go the corporate route. I knew I wanted to go the applied route. That's why I went into IO psychology in the first place. So I would have career options and I would have different avenues to take based on what I had tried, what I had more passion or engagement in. And so I used my time in grad school to instantly evaluate academia versus applied. And it wasn't until I got a taste of that applied in my internship that I knew that that's where I wanted to go. This has got to be the like nerdiest conversation for people listening into because you have three people in this room who have all advanced degrees. One of the, the purposes of this show is to establish common ground. And the three of us are all from very different backgrounds, but the calculation that we made in terms of how we're pursuing our education or our advancement are very similar. So when I went through the same process, I came at the conclusion of getting a terminal degree, mainly because I didn't feel that I got the value that I needed out of the master's programs that, that I worked through. And as I was evaluating the decision, one of the things that I that stood out to me is that most PhD programs or most terminal degree programs are designed in such a way to have you spend near a decade and only to have you wash out. So my criteria was I'm going to get a terminal degree that gives my mom the opportunity to brag to all her friends that she's got a doctor in the family because that's kind mm -hmm. of important for, yeah. Indi for Indians, uh, except I'm not that kind of doctor. So my calculation was it's got to be a concurrent program because if I'm doing classwork and then working the next handful of years on the dissertation, I would never finish it out. And what's interesting is... Sarah, you mentioned that that passion for application is what drove you that direction into Kellogg. Well, I was the same way. I didn't see the value of going the PhD route because it was all theoretical. So I went applied research and I'm oversimplifying, but it, it's striking to me how common the decision-making process was in terms of the educational pursuit amongst all three of us in the room. One of the other things that, that you mentioned that was really interesting to me is that as you started getting into Kellogg, you approached it with a level of humility, meaning, hey, I want to get myself as much exposure as possible. I don't know a lot of stuff. I'm paraphrasing. So just let me get an opportunity. And I think for early career people who are looking at, okay, how do I navigate the world of work? Everybody knows how we are in our 20s and maybe sometimes even longer where we know, we think we know everything. But approaching the world of work with a sense of humility or a position of humility where you are just, to use your words, a sponge, that is going to take you a really long way. That's a really strong call out on your part too. We could have a whole another hour on just nerds. <laughs> so I'm actually currently in a PhD program and it is Indiana Tech University, shout out. And my focus is on the impediments to leadership for women. And so one of the things that fascinates me is that the this approach to when we look at um, women in leadership, particularly in the corporate sector, because that's what my focus is, is that you'll hear things like women need to do more of this in order to get there. And women need to do more of that. What's fascinating to me is like when you look at the Fortune 500, for example, there are less than 60 women who are CEO. So what's curious about me is that we're looking at it from the perspective of, oh, there's only 60 women and what women need to do. But my position is, I'm looking at it a little differently. My question is, why are there 440 men in the role? And looking at it from that standpoint, I'm hoping to unearth a number of different things to help inform the conversation. There are others that 
who are doing this too, thank God, because otherwise it'd be so much harder to write this paper. But the reason that I bring that up is that one of the comments that you made was some, something along the lines of uh, the women who were at Kellogg who influenced your career. Can you talk a little bit more about that and how that did that help to solidify the decision and how has that helped shape your perspective as a leader? In reflecting on those women, I worked for three different COEs and three different women leaders in those spaces. And I learned something different from each of them. I think from Angela, who was the one who hired me into Kellogg in the first place, she's the one who said, throw up your hand, say yes bounce around as much as you're comfortable from one place to the next. She gave me the specific advice to go back and forth from COEs to business-facing HR. If a vertical career path is something you, you are interested in, that will serve you well, which I think, and I reflect on that all the time because it's exactly what I am doing in my career. And then I would say, so I worked for, with, for and with Angela the most, and then I hopped around from project to project with Stephanie and Shannon. And I think two women, Stephanie taught me how to, um, what it looks like to be a leader who's very empathetic. We talk a lot, that's very buzz right now, an empathetic leader. Before that was ever a term that we used, she was that. She was incredibly supportive. She met me and anybody she was working with. She met you where you were. And I think that that's something I've taken and held on to as an example of what the type of leader I want to be. And then I worked with Shannon for just a brief period of time when I was in that leadership development space. And she taught me what it was like to be an authentic leader. She brought her whole self to work. She had relocated for the role. She talked about her life, where she came from. She, she happened to be an alpaca farmer on the side. And it was just interesting because I think for the, she was probably the first one that I worked for who I knew on a personal level. And up until that point in my career, I thought it was very, you came to work and you compartmentalized everything. Honestly, you know, and I worked for Shannon after my dad had passed and it wasn't until I was prepared to ask for time off to attend my la my, my dad's last few days and his funeral that I had told anybody at work what was going on with my dad. And he had been sick for a full year before, and we knew the day was coming, but no one at work knew it because I was always brought up that you, you don't bring your personal stuff and your baggage to work and vice versa. So Shannon showed me how to be, bring my whole person, your whole self to work. And I think from each of those women very early in my career, I still connect those lessons to each of them every day. And I try to be a little bit of each of them in my own style because I want to be me, but at times I can see and I know who is shaping me in certain situations. There was one of the uh, leaders that you just mentioned that had, you said that still guides your career to this day, the perspective. Can you talk a little bit about the, your take on being a specialist versus a generalist? What are the pluses and minuses of looking at your career in that way? Yeah. I don't think that there's pro or con for either path you take. And I think that there are folks who find a uh, a lane within either of those spaces. Either you become a, a, a deep specialist in a COE, sometimes you cross over those COEs, but it is a special skill and it is a different lifestyle almost when you're in a business facing HR position. You have to remind yourself continually that you are HR first because the business will swallow you up and make you one of them, right? The whatever group you support, whether it's finance or sales or operations, it doesn't matter. They will bring you in and you will start talking the talk and walking the walk really fast. And so I think that's one thing I learned in the five years or so just recently that I spent in that seat. I've got to be HR first. I am an expert in my field and I am here to play that role, but I have that expertise in HR because I've spent so much time 
in different COEs. I can bring that knowledge with me. I also have to remind myself, those are things that the, that other leaders within those business line functions like operations, sales, or finance, they don't have that expertise. They don't, they shouldn't, right? They shouldn't focus there. So when it comes time to do a reorg or create a new operating model or go through a major change in the way we, we do things because of a shift in business strategies, how to bring people along. Some leaders get it and they get it really quickly, but it's really important for the HR, whether you be in the business facing seat or the center of excellence, who's creating the tools and the strategies in each of those areas. It's so, so important that we earn our seat at the table and we, we are the expert at what we do. And I think there's no right or wrong path for anyone in their career as a, you get to a leadership position, however you're going to get there. But for me, my personal career has benefited greatly because I've gone around the circle of different HR areas. And I think the next time I go back into a business facing seat, because I do see that as my next role after I have to leave my legacy in my current role before I'm ever going to be ready to leave. So I'm nowhere near ready for that because I, I know exactly what I want to do in the role that I'm in and what I want to accomplish, the legacy I want to leave. But I also know that there's a part of me that misses that HR business partner, that that interactivity with leaders every single day in the business, sitting there being chief of staff. I miss that at times. And so I know that's probably what I'm going to be seeking out in the next few years. But the next time I want to go back and lead the HR business partners. I want to, I want to rest both laterally and vertically. And I'll, I'll know when the opportunity is right at the time that I'm ready to explore is how I approach it. There's such an amazing synergy. I don't know if like Jim and I are like projecting out what we want people to say, but it's, I'm joking about that because in another episode that we recorded recently, that particular guest also brought up this piece about legacy. And at least, at least when I think about it, that's a very important thing for me. I, I ask this question oftentimes of people that have worked with me on teams is what would you like your legacy to be? Because it's such a, it's such a guiding light, right? To keep you focused on what it is that you want to achieve. And so I hope that that's a key takeaway that folks that are listening will be able to benefit from. One of the leaders that you worked for before this was a thing taught you the value of bringing your whole self to work and how that impacted you in terms of your overall leadership philosophy. Those of you listening who haven't connected with Sarah, Sarah delayed her leadership journey for a little while, and she was very intentional about taking on the mantle of leadership. Talk us through that decision-making process. How do you actually put that into play from a day-to-day -day perspective with how you lead your teams and everything else that flows from that? What were the factors that caused you to delay your progression into leadership? So bringing my, my whole self to work, I, it's interesting. I think because I've delayed getting to this point, it's, it's, it's indicative of who I am. So I, I got married a little bit later than most of my friends. I had kids a little bit later than most of my friends. I've taken on leadership roles, maybe a little bit behind schedule as some people might have prescribed their own career, but it's interesting. So I decided to step into my first ever people leadership role at the same time as I have a two-year-old and a three-year-old. I took this role just a couple of months before I moved into a brand new house in which my mother moved in with us. So I say that all because I have a lot going on in my personal life. And I don't know that I could carry the weight of compartmentalizing that every single day. My kids get sick. I, my house has contractors doing certain projects every day. I feel like there's somebody coming in my door that I have to go pop up and let them in and show them where they need to be. I've got a husband who also works from home, who you'll see in the background walking around sometimes in my videos. If I 
didn't have the permission to be my whole self at work, I don't think I could be an effective leader right now. I don't think my team would know who I am and what's important in my life. I also think when I started at JLL and when I started in this leadership position, I, I also made a very different decision for myself than I had, that I had never made before. I, I make it very vocal and I share with everyone when they start to work with me that I have sacred hours in my day. I log off at 5 p.m. every single day and I do not pick up my phone. I do not answer an email and I don't look at teens until 8 p.m. after my children have gone to bed. My JLL world stops for those three hours because like I said, I've got little ones and this time is so precious with them. Our time each day is pretty much limited to those three hours because we're separated, you know, as soon as they go off to their day. And I'm not gonna compromise that. And I think if I didn't bring my whole self to work, my personal life would suffer probably much more than my professional life, but I personally would have an internal struggle every day as well. And I just don't, again, so I talked earlier about the first time I made a, like a well-being decision for myself. I think by saying and presenting who I am to everyone I work with as transparently, maybe it's vulnerable or however you want to call it, but everyone knows who I am, what I've got going on and how I balance my life because I, I do it very intentionally. So I speak to it very intentionally. And I think that it gives my team the permission to do that themselves. And it creates this connection, which ultimately leads to trust. This team that I have with me right now is a dynamic that I've never experienced before with the team. The amount of trust that we have, the amount of, I've got your back, you got this thing going on, let me pick some stuff up for you and we'll power through it together. We do that for each other every single day. And there's got to be a component because we all know each other. We all value each other as people, not just colleagues and coworkers. That's the stuff that you can't measure. It's, I don't even know if you can teach it. I don't, I, and if you don't do it from the very beginning of your team's kind of conception, I don't know how you go back and then get it right. So I knew that if I didn't start my time at JLL in the same way, and I knew that if I didn't do this with my team and each member of my team intentionally, it would be really hard to create it after a different norm was established. So yeah, it's something that Shannon showed me very early. And this is the first time I've ever really truly applied it. Honestly, it just feels so much better than it did when I was leave everything at home, hurry it, suck it up, sit through your meetings. If somebody catches you in the doorway before you're walking out and you've got places to be, don't text home and say, I'm going to be late. I just got caught. I've got to have this conversation. I might be a while. No, you say to the person in the doorway, you know what? I've got to run. I was on my way out. We can pick this up tomorrow when I'm truly focused and I have time to invest in this conversation and give you the attention that this topic needs, right? That's what I do every day. And the hard part is once you make an exception to that and you let somebody into those sacred hours, the hours aren't sacred anymore. And so I can't, I and I don't. And I think I'm a better mom, a better wife, a better daughter because of it. Which Then when I log back on at eight o'clock to see what I missed, there's not a lot to be on it, right? Like the world carries on pretty well without me. Those are great observations. I know that Lawrence has a follow-up, but I want to tie this together really quick because me and I are Gen Xers and we came up in a professional existence where it wasn't that. 
you didn't have sacred hours and it was, you have to be loyal to your company. And the irony of that is that as soon as something happens in your world as an employee shifts the dynamic or puts that quote unquote loyalty into question, the organization is typically looking for your replacement as soon as they possibly can. Yep. And this this is where I give massive props to millennials and Generation Z because they've ushered in this era of more of that equal loyalty relationship. And I think the pandemic actually accelerated that as well because it made it clear in everybody's mind, hey, you could drop dead tomorrow. So what sense does it make for us to have this one-sided loyalty to an organization where the people who are really going to miss us, our friends, our family, and all of that, company's not going to miss you. Within a week and a half, they're already having somebody else in, in place. So that's, that's a great observation. I think it's a great equalizer when it comes to employee-employer relationships and having those boundaries. And more importantly, to your point, being clear about what those boundaries are, that's a fundamental aspect of leadership anyways, is clarity and expectation and setting up those guardrails. Yeah, Sarah, I, it's interesting because one of the things that I have learned, and I appreciate the sacred hours because one of the things that I've learned is that a couple of shifts uh, to Jim's point. I mean, he knows he's, he's worked with me. We've, we've worked together that we come from an environment of always on. And one of the things that I've learned from Niels and Gen Z is what he talked about and what you shared, which is the sacred hours. Now today, the way that I, the way that I execute is, is that when I'm, I'm off and when I'm, I'm on and it is so much more refreshing and my head is so much clearer when I take on different tasks, the question for you is, is that what is the root of where you began sacred hours? It wasn't until I joined JLL, to be honest. I had never been in a position or worked for a company where, and I was kind of taking a leap of faith that this is what I heard about JLL. This is what I've heard about the team. We, we operate this way. We operate very personally. And so I took a bit of a leap of faith in, in hoping that that was really true and that the unwritten rule was truly that. And it was day one when I joined JLL. And like I said, if I hadn't done that, and then all of a sudden I like crept that into the, with the people that I was working with and for, it would never have been as successful. It was like, I almost needed a clean break to reestablish my life and my work norms and how I separate those two. I needed that break because my former company that I worked for, I was an HR business partner and we were, and I was an HR business partner in the, la the last year I was in that role was the year COVID hit. We were on all the time. I was doing contact tracing all day, all night. I was giving people clearance to go meet customers or not. And I had no boundaries. I couldn't take a day off because I, and this is an extreme, but I say it jokingly, tongue in cheek. I felt like if I didn't show up and I didn't give that day every piece of me, like the place would have burned down. There were days and that, that was me. That's not anywhere near the truth, but I had never established those boundaries. I started working there before I had kids. So the most important thing in my day was my work. So it was really hard to retrain or to even think about retraining my work hour, my time. And it was, we joke about it, but I took, I take it very seriously. When I was in that role, my husband, I don't know if it was, it, it, he would laugh, but there's definitely truth in it, right? It's like, oh, this is work mode, Sarah. You can't talk to Sarah when she's in work mode. If she's checking emails on her phone or she decided to take a phone call from the other room, you better not go in because you're going to get like the wrath. And it's work mode, Sarah. You don't interfere. And he would, again, it was a running joke that we had, but I didn't want that. I didn't like that that was the joke that surrounded me when I picked up my phone to go take, take a conversation with work. Yeah. It was the look that, that 
again, that Catholic school principal look, like I can muster it up and people just know what I need them to do from me. And work mode, Sarah was get out. I'm busy. This is more important than you. And that was the indication that I was giving people in my personal life when I couldn't turn off. And I think another thing that lured me away from that, not only the role itself at JLL was appealing, but it wasn't HR business partner. I needed a break from that. I needed, I needed a breath of that pace. So I liked the idea that I was going back into a COE at a higher level than I had left COEs, which was always the purpose in my career. I'll go back and forth, but I want to climb as I go. And the experience that this role was going to give me is that direct team. I get to build a team. I get to develop other people. I get to walk the walk. I've been talking the talk of all of that stuff my entire career. And now I get to go do it myself and apply all of it. So it was the perfect time for me. I needed a break. It was elevated role. And it was a company that will always and forever be highly regarded on my resume, no matter what I do. And to have, if I look back, I've been incredibly lucky to work for some pretty impressive companies. And I just, I think it was, again, you mentioned it like that patient in me that this was the right time to make the leap and hit reset. I think an awesome byproduct though of, of that patience is that intentionality. And so the, the birth of intentionality comes in a number of different ways. Right, so you talked about the family being an element to that intention of creating the sacred hour. You talked about the career shift, right? So you talked about timing, right? So it was the right time. You talked about transparency because you wanted to come through the door working with teams. You said, I don't want to start one way and then later on say, I'm going to be something different. And so when you think about all of those different elements, they all equal to that intentionality. And I think it's important for us to key in on that, that a lot of times as you're talking about this, I can see how you're of course, thinking retrospectively, but those are all of the elements that you put in place to come up with those sacred hours and such a powerful statement. Write it down one day, because since you are an academic, a asterisk academic, you may put that into a book one day. You've been deliberate about your career journey. You've been deliberate about taking the leadership mantle. When you look at going back to the judgment and decision-making track that you were in during during grad school. How did that inform your core leadership principles and philosophy? And how does that show up in the work that, that you do now? Yeah, I, I always think about the research that I used to do in that space in which you can present two groups of people with the exact same two options. But the second you add a third extraneous variable to any of those situations, you can change the course of their decision-making. So for me, I don't think I would have given myself the credit to take a leadership position if I didn't have the maybe empowerment that I feel in other areas of my life right now. I've always questioned, do I have enough experience? Do I have enough years under my belt? Or do I have enough work that makes me credible if I'm to give my opinion or I'm the one setting a strategy or vision? Do I have enough experience to make good decisions? I've always questioned myself, but it sounds maybe very cliche, but there's something about becoming a mother that makes you feel like you can do anything. And there's nothing too big that you can't overcome. There's no, there's no sickness that'll keep you down. And so I do think that experience of becoming a mom and two times over, I think it's something that actually boosted my confidence to say, you know what? I've never been a mom before, but man, I figured it out and I'm pretty darn good at it. So I've never been a people leader, but I've been talking about people leadership for a really long time. And I can influence the highest level of an, of an executive and they don't even realize what I'm doing. Like, not, it might sound terrible. Like I'm not like a master manipulator, but I know how to, I know how to influence and I know how to lead through authenticity. 
And I really do think that that extraneous variable for me, because it's not that I had never been maybe provided the opportunity to consider a people leadership position before, but man, that variable of becoming a a mother really did give me the confidence that this is the time to say yes. And don't doubt yourself. You will figure it out. You'll also make mistakes, but guess what? The kid will still be happy and healthy at the end of the day. And guess what? You're never going to do something detrimental that you'll change the course of the company you work for in a single day. So learn from it, move on and be better. And just just as I do in different areas of my life, that's something that I I have to give myself the permission to say, you've never done it before, but that doesn't mean you're not gonna be great at it. When you look at your career journey, what are the key pieces that you would offer to emerging professionals? What are those couple of uh, nuggets? Yeah, it's interesting because I'm actually maybe unofficially playing a a bit of a role of a mentor for a friend of mine that I worked for at my former company. And she's really questioning what her next step is in her career. She's incredibly intelligent. She can solve any problem with data like I've never seen before. She's an incredible analyst. And I think the thing that she has that I wish I had at that point in my career was she has the confidence right? She knows that she's really dang smart and she knows that she can, she can contribute a lot to wherever she is positioned. And so the conversations that I continue to have with her and the advice that I would give to anyone at that place in their career, where they're trying to figure out what the next step is one, ask yourself what you're doing in your current role. That is going to be a great story to tell a little bit of that legacy piece. It doesn't matter what level you're at. If you feel like you have to see something through before you can really close that chapter in your current role, I encourage you to see it through. But once you feel like you've got an amazing story to tell, it's time to start looking for that next challenge. And it's time to say, okay, I've got a really good resume builder in this experience or this project that I worked on. How do I transition that and make a bigger impact in the next thing that I do. And it might not be a new role. It might not be a new company. It might not be a promotion, but how do you get yourself involved in a project where you get to make and play an even bigger role than you did in that last one? I'm talking to my current employee and and his he's got critical career progression goals, which I think is great. And he's very open about it. And I said, I think vertical for you in this role is just keep doing what you're doing and be a leader among your peers. And it'll just happen for you. But I said, if you think about what you want to do next, maybe outside of this role, what experience don't you have yet? Or what experience do you want to do again, but better than you did the first time around? So he's been a people leader in the past and he, he's shared with me, he's taking a break from it right now. Do you want to go back to it and be better the next time around? Do you want to go back to it and and do it at a higher level than the last time? So what are you doing right now? That's going to be your story to tell your legacy. Where do you want to go? But don't go there because you're chasing a title or a dollar amount. Go there because it's going to give you an experience that you've never had before. Go there because it's going to give you an experience that you can do better than the time you did before. But then also we came to this discussion just last week with him where I said, but if you need a break from climbing or progressing, do something you're incredibly passionate about. Maybe step away from that motion path and take some time to reevaluate what you want in your career while you do something that you just absolutely love every single day. And it's, you know, and for him, it's facilitation. He loves to facilitate. He's a master at it. So if he needs to go back into that to go fill that bucket at some point in his career, go do that. Take a step away from that, like supercharging my career mindset. I like the advice that I've always received. Say yes when the opportunity is right. Say yes to things that will make you better or elevate you. Don't say yes to the same things all the time, 
right? Say yes to things that make you a little uneasy or will be a challenge. We always talk about that, like that comfort zone, stretch zone. And then if you're stretched too thin, you get burnt out. Don't be comfortable and don't be burnt out, but be stretching and think about what you're doing and how you're, you're growing your skills in that applied space of learning every day. So don't get stuck in a rut. Do what you say you're going to do in that role so that you can maybe be even more efficient in your career journey than you would be if you didn't focus on your own skin and your own knowledge growth every day. That's really strong advice. I think one of the things that I always think about, and I do this with for I've led teams, is when you're looking at your personal professional vision for yourself, what's your big, ugly, hairy goal. Like the biggest thing that you want to accomplish in your life. And I even go to the, the extent of when you die, if you're looking at your professional journey as part of your eulogy, what will it say? And then evaluate each step in your progression forward from that end game contact. What am I missing? That's going to help me get this big thing. And then those are the areas that you go towards. But I think the other the other part, and I'm surprised that you didn't mention it, Sarah, is the big theme of your story is patience and deliberation. And I think there's a lot of people out there in the world of work who are coming up through the ranks who are defining their career journey based off of other people's impression of where they should be and how fast they should get there. And I think the biggest lesson that I take away from our conversation is you're the CEO of your own career and you have the right to define what those boundaries are, what that pace looks like and what's right for you. So don't feel the pressure of other people dictating to you where you should be. I think that's the biggest lesson that, and this is strange for me saying it because I'm one of the most impatient people that are around. That's one of the biggest takeaways from the conversation that I've gotten with uh, with you. Yeah, I think that is something that I, it served me well, is my patience, both personally and professionally. I've waited until I had the opportunity to size skills before I was truly thrown into the deep end. I think that served me very well. Just I, my only caveat to that, as I'm sitting here thinking about what this podcast is rooted in, right? Women immigrants and minorities in leadership positions. I don't want a woman hearing that, be patient, don't compare yourself or your career trajectory to someone else. As, don't be too patient though. Give yourself the confidence to know that you can do it. Right? And for me, if I had kids earlier in life, I might've become a leader earlier in life because I do think that was the thing that shaped me and gave me the confidence to do it. Don't question your capability. Just do the analysis to make sure it's the right time for you and make sure that you know what kind of leader you want to be before you go into it. It's like I said, it's really hard to change your course once you've established your leadership norms. So the thing that I think I did well during that period of patience was I knew what kind of leader I wanted to be, what kind of leader I didn't want to be. And I wasn't going to put myself in that position unless I felt like I was at a company and within a team where I could be that leader. And it, like I said, it served me very, very well. But I don't want someone to hear, oh, Sarah was patient and Sarah took her time and she did a lot of lateral moves before she went vertical. Maybe I should do that. You should do what is right for your career. And as long as you have purpose and intention in those decisions and you know what you want to get out of those, those experiences, that, that trust it, trust yourself. That's an awesome call out. Thanks for, uh, thanks for clarifying. 
on that front. So this has been a really fun conversation. I want to thank you again for joining us on the show, Sarah. I wouldn't be surprised if we get more micro in some areas down the road and have you back, but I really appreciate the conversation. I'm super excited to, to put this out. For those that are listening, uh, this episode will be out soon and make sure you follow us on LinkedIn, on Facebook. Um, you can find us on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Sure you give us reviews or ratings and give us feedback on how this, how this goes. We certainly hope that the advice and experience that Sarah has shared with us is going to serve you well in as you chart your own leadership journey. The one big thing that I get out of the conversation that we had with Sarah is tie that big vision of yours to the steps necessary to go ahead and achieve that vision and be clear about what you want and be intentional about what you want. And that's going to serve you well more often than not. So Sarah, thanks for hopping on. This was a great conversation. And with that, we are signing off. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cascading Leadership. We hope you enjoyed the story as much as we did. Make sure you subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast player. Follow us on YouTube, TikTok, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Leave us a review. Tell a friend. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, reach out to me at jim at cascadingleadership.com. Tune in next time for another great episode that will help you move your career further faster.